following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. All right, you've no doubt heard the expression that the best things in life are worth waiting for. You heard that before? Uh, The best things in life are worth waiting for. People are usually thinking of things like, made a little list here, um, true love is worth waiting for. And... um, Marriage is worth waiting for, the right job, the trip of a lifetime. Children, I'm told, better than that, grandchildren. Uh, the, the best, amen from the grandparents? Amen from the grandparents. Um, the best things in life are worth waiting for. for and the, the phrase implies this, that, that patience, ongoing patience, is necessary so that we don't settle for something that's less than the best. We don't want to settle. We, we want the very best we could possibly have, and so that's, that's worth waiting for, but I'm going to have to be patient for it. And here's what I'm thinking. We could just alter that just a little bit and, and change it to singular, that the best thing in life is worth waiting for. I'm a preacher. You know exactly what the best thing is. You know what I'm going to say to you in this moment, that the best thing in life is Jesus Christ. It's, and, and what we're anticipating, where I'm going with this, is, is that as the followers of Jesus Christ, we have been given what is often called the blessed hope, uh, the hope of the resurrection to new life, the, the hope that we will see Jesus Christ face to face. We're latching on to the best thing of everything that we could possibly have in life. And that is that Jesus Christ is coming back. I want to I wait patiently for that. But having said that, I understand that the waiting is often hard. That being patient is hard. That when life starts to throw challenges my way when the difficult circumstances that I have to go through are right in front of me and I'm having to work those things through, it's, it's, it just sounds like pious preaching to say, I need to be patient through that. These aren't platitudes. There's nothing easy about the thing that we're talking about here today. The waiting is often hard. In today's passage, James is addressing that very issue. He's talking to some believers who were being, I'm not exaggerating when I use these two words, they were being cruelly oppressed by people who had the advantage over them. And James's plea to these believers is simply this, that they were not to resist the thing that was happening in their life, but that they were to patiently endure, persevere through it, bear up under it, and wait for the coming of the Lord. I wonder how much, and I was challenged with this this week as I was studying even, I I wonder how much we even think about the return of the Lord. I wonder how much in the last seven days as we've kind of gone through our lives, if it even crossed our minds once. I can tell you for certain it crossed my mind a lot this week, but that's because this passage was put in front of me and I needed to study this week. But I was challenged with the thought that maybe the week before I hadn't thought about Jesus coming back at all. 
And yet not only are we to think about this, not only are we to, to once in a while kind of bring it to mind that Jesus is coming back, it's supposed to be the defining motivation of our lives. It's supposed to be thing, the thing that drives us to do everything we do. I don't take a breath without thinking that Jesus is coming back soon. And I need to be patiently enduring whatever I'm facing in life in light of that. That's where James is going. This is uh, James chapter 5 in the first 11 verses. Let me um, read these for us and we'll get right into them. Mike uh, prayed for us already. So James 5, 1 through 11. Come now. Let me just say before I start this, the first six verses are one of those times where you just go, Tell us what you're really thinking, James, okay? Not really. It's so clear and hard-hitting, but he's addressing people who are not in the room. We'll talk about that in a moment. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept backed by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now he turns his attention to those who are in front of him. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and and merciful. That's our God. Until the coming of the Lord, this passage tells us, until the coming of the Lord, be patient. And here are some ways that James really breaks down for us to do that. First, accepting the trouble that life dishes out. We need to accept it. And there's no doubt that the first six verses, these are a shocking, hard-hitting condemnation of wealthy, unbelieving landowners who are oppressing the poor laborers who happen to be believers, at least some of whom happen to be believers, who were part of the church. These these, unbe- these these believers who are sitting there, they're looking for some answers. They're trying to figure out why life is indeed so hard since they've accepted Christ as their Savior. They're wondering if Jesus cares at all about them. James is giving them an answer. Now please understand that in these first six verses, this is not a blanket condemnation of wealth. It's not that these were wealthy people. This is a condemnation of wealthy people who were unbelievers who were oppressing the poor. 
whom they had an advantage over. And there's no need to take the six verses, really, when you read them and to dissect them and interpret every phrase and come up with exactly how it's going to be so horrible for them on the judgment day. The six verses aren't, in fact, any kind of sermon toward the rich people. Again, they're not in the congregation. This isn't an appeal to them to repent. The whole thing is really, the six verses are a literary technique that James is using uh, to encourage those who are the oppressed. He's addressing a crowd who's not there in order to say to the ones that are that, that God has their back. That it's not like I haven't seen what's going on. I've, I've heard your cries, I've heard your pleas, and, and I am going to respond. The purpose of the message, these six verses, to encourage the oppressed. To have them increase their trust in a God who will vindicate all injustice in His time. Verse 1, he gives the rich a warning. The oppressed are hearing this. Judgment's coming for you. They're not going to get away with this. You can take comfort from that. Nobody's getting away with anything. Verse 2, he exposes the foolishness of their pleasure now principle. I'm going to enjoy all of this right now. I'm going to soak it all in right now. There is no later. It's only what I can get for myself now. Verse 4, he tells them that they're not getting away with it because, specifically, uh, the cries of those who are the oppressed have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You might not think, if you're the oppressed today, you might not think that God's hearing your cries, but He is. Plead with Him. Pour your heart out to Him if you're facing some injustice. Let God know about it. He's hearing just may not yet be time for him to act. It says that the cries of the harvesters have reached, notice, the ears of the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, by the way, this is a phrase that refers to the Lord as the commander of the armies of heaven. That's an awesome thing to think about. Kind of sung out that a little bit through that song, um, Strong to Save. God has an army. And... Uh, uh, we're part of that, and God means to come with the hosts of, of heaven to vindicate on the last day. It's an awesome thing to think about. It's the Lord of hosts who hears, the Lord of the armies of heaven. He's going to come, and in contrast to His first coming, his, the advent of Christ as a child, a very humble circumstance in a feeding trough, in a small town in Judea, kind of a quiet entrance into the world. In contrast to that, God means to come a second time in force. He's coming, we'll see in a few moments, He's coming as a rider on a white horse. And it's going to be violent. And judgment will come down on this earth. And whatever you're bearing right now, whatever injustice you're facing, please understand it will be fully and entirely vindicated on that day. Maybe not now. But it will come. And it's for this divine vindication that they're to wait patiently. 
When God comes in power, you know what we'll say? This was worth waiting for. That's what we'll say. This is awesome. Look at our God act. His word was right all along. It's awesome what's happening in the earth right at this moment. That's what we'll say when Jesus comes back. And understand, these are people who, as much as anybody could say, we're facing injustice, our life is hard, others are prospering, while, while I'm languishing, while I'm perishing under the weight of it. Think about that and some others who said similar things. Job um, said this, and maybe you remember this phrase, Job who faced some uh, difficult days, right? You know the story. Why do the wicked live, he said in Job 21.7, reach old age and grow mighty in power? Why does that happen? You ever ask yourself that question? Why is it that people that hate Jesus seem to do so well some of the time? A lot of the time. Jeremiah asked a similar question, a 12.1, and this is really the phrase that we remember. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Anybody ever complain to God? Just raise your hand if you've ever complained to God. Good. See, you're just like a prophet. Okay. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive? Of all those who just confess that you have complained to God. How many of you have complained to God? Honest. We're all here just working out our salvation with fear and trembling right now. Your complaint to God has been about someone else doing better than you. Let's try that again. <laughs> How many of you, your complaint to God is because someone was doing better than you? Yeah, I thought so. I could probably try for a third time and more hands would go up again as you think about it. I mean, this is, a, this is where we live. This is the temptation that we face to shake our fist at God and complain about kind of the Lord in life that we've been handed. Verse 6 kind of punctuates the severity of, of, of all of this. You have condemned. Remember, he's still addressing these, these rich oppressors who are not even in front of him. He says, you have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, they weren't murdering them in the, in the literal or at least not in the immediate sense of kind of taking a knife to them and putting them out of their misery. It's not that. But, but slowly, bit by bit, they were dying. In other words, we know this. Even today, we know this. that Poverty is not good for your health. We know that. And these people were so oppressed and so poor, not eating properly, not in good housing, not clothed properly against the elements, just not able to access any kind of health care or anything like this. And, and so that's not good for your health when that's true of you. And so in essence, when, when you're an oppressor and you're withholding what somebody else is due, when you're the wealthy, powerful person and you're lording it over someone, that's not good for them. And bit by bit, little by little over what would be a shorter lifetime, they were being murdered by these oppressors. And it says in the latter part of verse 6, the righteous person, the one being oppressed, who James is really addressing here, 
purpose. And they, they can't even resist it. They have, they have no capacity to fight it. They have no influence. They have no power. They have no money. They have no access to lawyers. There's nothing in law that's going to help them. They don't even have the physical strength inside of them. They have no leverage. They don't resist because they, they can't resist. Some of you have probably asked the question and you've been in that place too where you feel like I've got no fight left in me. You're probably in this very position where you're just even, you, you've cried out to God. I, I love Jesus. I made the decision to follow Jesus. And yet my life is still difficult. I, I still feel like I'm oppressed. I'm still facing injustice. And where is God in that? You have no capacity to, to go to war against whatever the circumstance of life is that you're failing, uh, facing. It's, it's entirely out of your control. There's no way the circumstance is changing, changing as a result of any effort you could bring to it. And, and you're looking to God and you're praying to Him. And you're like, Jesus, I love you, so what's with? Please understand that you're not the only one. Lots of us have been in that place. And I have a feeling that if you're doing this thing right, if you're doing this following Jesus thing right, that there's not one of us that's ever going to escape before our life is over. Some form of injustice, some trial we're facing, some difficult circumstance that's out of our control where we don't question God and complain to Him about it some way. It's a universal thing for all of us. The appeal of the text here is really this. We need to accept the trouble that life dishes out. It's going to be there. For all of us, and even as I say all of this, it's not hard to see Jesus in, in this. It's not hard to look at these verses and, and the injustice that we might face and the oppression we face and, and know that our Lord faced all of it as well. He suffered at the hands of those who were the powerful and the wealthy. He is the one true. You see that expression there in verse 6. He's the one true righteous person because in this crowd and in anyone who would ever read this letter of James, we would understand this. There is none righteous. No, not one. It's so generous of James even to be called these oppressed ones righteous. They're only righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. There's no one here who's righteous in themselves. We're all only righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. He's the one true righteous person. He was unjustly condemned and murdered on the cross on our behalf. You hear echoes of all of this in what James is writing. And that injustice also will be vindicated. The injustice that Jesus Christ suffered will be vindicated the death on the cross will be vindicated the first step in that of course was well it, the grave didn't keep him very long amen just a, just a few days and the first step in that the glorious resurrection the declaration that that death and the grave are going to be no more 
the power of Christ's resurrection in us. And every person who chooses to follow Jesus Christ because the Spirit has called them into that salvation is a testimony and a declaration about the vindication of injustice in this world. And then the final vindication comes when we see Jesus Christ in the clouds. When he comes back to this earth and the final judgment that he will bring. I want you to see this. Um, Turn in your Bibles to um, Revelation chapter 19. I love these verses so much. This is going to sound a little different for Christmas this year. But a little preview, uh, if the Lord wills. Amen. All right. If the Lord wills. Um, a two-week Christmas series. A uh, first week, um, two weeks before Christmas on the advent of Christ. I'll talk about the nativity. And then the second, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, I'm going to preach on the second advent of Christ. I'm going to preach this passage. Um, from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You can see how this is a fabulous Christmas passage, right? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. And listen, that's the vindication that he brings to us to all of those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ he's bringing that hope to us all well until that happens then be patient accepting the trouble that life dishes out and secondly disciplining your heart disciplining your heart in the face of it now here's James's in light of what he just said here's James's best counsel Uh, To these oppressed poor, verse 7, he just says, two words. You can underline these. Be patient. Uh, Be patient. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the word means both, until the coming of the Lord. Uh, Be patient. Patience, I I just got a a simple definition of this. I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, Patience is uh, bearing under life's pain. Because I believe God's promise. Bearing under life's pain. Because I believe God's promise. That's, that's what patience essentially is. And he gives them an illustration here of a farmer. He says again in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. Um, a reference here in this part of the world, there were uh, two uh, crops per year, unlike here uh, in Canada, but two crops per year, the early and late rains. And so for the farmer, it was always the same thing. He tilled his soil, he planted his seed, he did what he could do, put the seed in the ground, and then he waited. 
patiently. And so many things after the hard work of sowing the seed, so many things then are completely out of his control. He has no control over over, uh, pests. He has no control over the weather. He has no control over thieves who might come and steal the crop. He has no control over damage that might come to it in any number of ways. He has, he has no control. He doesn't know if having planted the seed, it's actually going to bear anything. And, and so it's, it's wait. It's wait and see. It's patience. And notice the value of what comes from the patience. He says here that it's precious. It's of great value. The, the word is... We talk about precious stones. That's actually the word. So it refers to diamonds, rubies, emeralds, sapphires. It's, it's something that precious. The fruit that comes from the labor of being patient, of, of trusting in God and bearing under the circumstances is the most precious thing we could ever think of. The most precious thing that this, this world offers. Precious stones before the Lord. Worth waiting for. Worth being patient in order to attain. And so he says to them, be patient. Verse 7, verse 8. Says it again. In fact, he uses the word patient or patience four times in the text. You don't have to know much about studying the Bible that if in one paragraph it has the word four times, that's probably what it's about. Correct? That's what it's about. And he's driving the point because I think it's so hard for us to be patient. He's using the word over and over again. You also be patient, bearing under life's pain because you believe God's promise. How should they do that? He says here, establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He reminds them of that truth again. Establish your hearts. I mean, this is going to take intentional heart discipline. The discipline of patience. The discipline of being long-suffering with whatever I have to face in my life. I'm not, honestly, I'm not at all interested in a lesson about patience that helps you be more patient in traffic. That's not really what we're going here. We're 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 not going for moral reformation. Though I will admit that if it's difficult for you to be patient in the small things, then you're probably not very patient in the bigger things that God is really concerned with. We need to have a discipline of patience, establishing our hearts. And it isn't like impatience is actually going to get us anywhere. I've noticed that when I'm in traffic. When I've ill-timed a trip, for example, to Oakville, and now I'm heading home at 5 o'clock up the QEW. You know, those people down in the 905, they diss the 400, but the QEW is a disaster that, that makes the 400 seem like child's play. And, and, and having to do both of them on the way home. And I've noticed that the more upset I get, and this has been known to happen, 
the more frustrated, the more I talk to other drivers who don't seem to notice at all, because the reality is that I don't have the proper um, permission to use the gestures that I would need to use uh, to communicate properly with people in other vehicles. Um, I have found that none of that helps. The impatience doesn't actually help. Any. It doesn't move the traffic faster. It doesn't get those people out of the left lane that shouldn't be there. It, 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 all those people in the middle lane. Why are you in the middle lane? Get to the slow lane. You're driving slower. Okay. I feel like this is becoming a therapy session. <laughs> or a rant. Or the impatience doesn't actually help. And it won't work with the thing that we're waiting for, by the way. I mean, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. That's the hope. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord. So it isn't like the Lord is looking down on our situation and going, oh, wow, you know what? Dave looks really frustrated with life right now. I think I will hasten all of my plans for the entire universe and the world and all of the culmination of human history. I will hasten all of that because Dave Esker seems a bit up, uptight today. I mean, God's not altering his plans for you. He's not altering them for me. Yet we kind of think that he ought to. The real problem for us is, is that we have this little bit of impatience about the Lord's coming and a frustration with our current circumstances. And, and it isn't far before impatience becomes anger. Any other People like me in traffic where impatience actually becomes anger. And it isn't long before impatience becomes anger, becomes bitterness. And bitterness becomes a hard heart. And remember, we're not talking about traffic. We're talking about the Lord here. God, I'm a bit impatient about my circumstances. Could you change these? And they don't change. And then we become angry with God. And at the point of anger slash bitterness, the prayers stop, and now we're just railing on him in the third person rather than speaking to him personally. And our hearts become so embittered and so hard that we find ourselves drifting from him. And the problem is not God, is it? The problem is ours, that, that we haven't disciplined our heart in the face of whatever we're confronted with God will bring full vindication in his time and patience is actively living out that truth impatience is saying God your plan sucks can we get a new plan patience is trusting him bearing under life's pain because I believe God's promise now that doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation with him about it these oppressed souls under the weight and burden of these wealthy landowners had indeed cried out to God. God, this is unjust. We're not even getting paid. We're working and laboring. We're in poverty here. I don't have food to feed my family. I don't have clothes to put on my back. God, are you hearing? Listen, God wants to hear the prayer. He wants you to plead with him and cry out to him. And then James is telling him, just don't end the prayer there. There needs to be trust expressed. But God, ultimately, I trust in you. God, I, I believe the promise. I know you're coming back. 
I'm going to wait for that day and I'm going to bear under the thing that you've ordained for me. Ultimately, we wait for God to show up and set everything right. That may take a lifetime or longer. We stay faithful in the meantime. We don't lose heart. We show courage. We show firm resolve to follow Jesus Christ. We stay on mission. We keep working for Him. We serve Him joyfully. That's really patience in action. And we need to get the idea out of our heads that, that waiting slash patience, which, which on its face sounds passive, but it's not. It's not sitting in a chair killing time. Oh, woe is me. It's, it's not off in a corner throwing uh, dust on our heads and wearing sackcloth and just moaning about our situation. It's active belief. It's a declaration that no matter what, I will follow. Disciplining your heart in the face of it and along with that, enduring the pain with contentment. Verse 9, the attention turns to how they're treating each other in the light of the challenges that they're facing. Check this out. Uh, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that, brothers and sisters. Just so you all know, I'm preaching to all of you. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You're not the judge. Why are you grumbling against one another? Isn't it true? Is this not true that when we're going through a difficult season, when something hard has happened to us, that the people we love the most who are uninvolved in whatever we're going through can often be the ones who are treated with the most contempt. We mistreat the people we love as a result of other circumstances that are happening in our life. You can't lash out at your boss and so you lash out at your kids or your spouse when you get home. That's what was happening here. Somehow, in the midst of these wealthy, unbelieving landowners oppressing these, these workers, these field workers, that somehow the field workers started to turn on each other. You must be causing this, or... I don't know what they were thinking. But all of a sudden, they're mistreating one another. They're grumbling against one another. James calls this out in them. You can't vent on one another. That's not what this is about. That's not who you are in Christ. James addressed this straight up. Don't grumble. Don't complain. The judge is standing at the door. He's the one who's going to get to decide who's right in all of this and who's wrong. And you need to keep your attitude in, in check. No grumbling, no complaining, no griping, no snippiness with one another. Did, did you get all those down? Grumbling, complaining. What was the other one? Griping. Snippiness. I like that one a lot. No taking it out on anyone else. That's not patience. That's not endurance at all. And he reminds them of some other people who they would know who had gone through similar difficult circumstances. People who were enduring injustice as well. Verse 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Quick take on the prophets here. I give you five prophets. As a sampling, Moses, 
He had the injustice of being called by God to lead people who only ever complained. There are so many things running through my mind right now that I am not going to say. It's difficult to lead a complaining people. I'm blessed to know that I don't lead a church of complainers. Praise God for that. Amen. Moses had that injustice. David was anointed as king. Remember God had uh, uh, Samuel go and anoint him, and then it was like 10 years before he got the throne. So in, in the meantime, Saul is, is still leading the nation the whole time. But David goes to serve Saul. So God has picked David to be the next king. And for that, Saul throws spears at him. Right? How do you think David feels about it? God, I was doing fine with the sheep out in the field. And now you've put me into this place and this whack job of a king is throwing spears at me. It seems unjust. Elijah was under constant threat doing exactly what God had called him to do. Go and preach to the northern kingdom. Preach to the king of Israel. And he spent his entire life under constant threat by Ahab and Jezebel. Jeremiah doing exactly what God had told him to do. Go and preach to Jerusalem and tell him the judgment is coming. Not a single convert. No one believes him. He tells them not to leave and go to Egypt. He doesn't want to go. They throw him into a pit. Then they lift him out and carry him off to the place he doesn't want to go. He's doing exactly what God told him to do. And what does it get him? Nothing but sorrow and heartache and oppression. Daniel. Daniel. He's just praying. As he had always done, he's just praying to God. And that's enough to get him thrown in the lion's den. It, it's, it's unjust. All of them were doing exactly what God asked them to do. And for that reason, they were beaten, pursued, imprisoned, some killed for no good reason, other than it was an advantage to someone else to do it. And God says, endure that with contentment. Endure it with contentment. What, what pain is God asking you to endure? Well, what's your, what's your brand of injustice? What, what have you pleaded to God about? I mean, have you prayed the prayer where you've actually said, I, I, God, I love you. I love you. I'm following you. I'm trying to do everything you tell me to do. I, I'm here this morning. I'm worshiping you. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to lay it all out on the line for you. And yet it's still hard. In fact, since I've been following you, it's even gotten harder. You seem to bless me and then, and then it gets hard again. Is it a failed marriage that you were willing to work on and your spouse wasn't? Is it a family situation that is so painful and difficult? Is it a job that, that you have where the boss is just, he, he hates you, he dislikes you, he makes your life miserable, or maybe it's your co-workers that are making it that way for you, and yet you, you know it's a good job and you can't just quit it and go somewhere else. 
You feel trapped by this circumstance. God, where are you in that? Is it a health issue that limits your ability to function? Is it a, an economic issue that despite trying to be faithful to the Lord and not take on additional debt, you just can't seem to ever get ahead? Is that your thing? You pleaded with Jesus to fix that? And it's just not coming easily? Is it that you're single and want to be married? Is it that you're infertile and you want to have children and you've pleaded with Jesus for it? It's not happening for you. It's unjust. It is. It's painful. Every one of those situations and a dozen more that I could cite. God says be patient. Bear under the pain. And believe the promise. Jesus is coming back. I think the only possible way we could do that now is by seeing that Jesus Christ is in an ongoing way at work in you. I love that it isn't just future. It isn't just a hope. That it's an ongoing work of God and His Holy Spirit in our lives. The pain we face does not limit God. We have to understand that. The pain we face, whatever it is, is not limiting God. You may see it limiting in some way, but please release the shackles of that and see that whatever the trial is, it's not limiting God. In fact, it would seem that God prefers to work in our confessed weakness. Injustice doesn't hinder the Spirit, it spurs on His best work. James says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And when we think about these prophets, and we read back on those situations now, and we go, those guys were so blessed. You think Jeremiah felt blessed when he was sitting in a pit? You think Daniel felt blessed when he was being thrown into a lion's den? That's not what I think of in terms of blessing. Honestly, I don't. I never pray in that way. And yet, that's exactly what... We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. It was no different a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago. The circumstances of life were as weighty, as painful. The interpersonal relationships, the hard times we go through. People get sick and die. It's all the same. Families are filled with drama. It was no different 3,000 years ago than it is now. It's all the same. Yet we consider them blessed because their story's in the Bible. <laughs> but God's writing a story right now. In your life, in this church, amongst people in your small groups, God's still writing the story. We consider those blessed to remain faithful we could even just say it this way. We consider those blessed who are remaining faithful and steadfast. The blessing of God comes to those who see Jesus Christ at work in the oppression and in the injustice. What we ought to value is not having the best job 
the one that we think is perfect or the ideal family or whether or not we're married or whether or not we can have children. These aren't the things that we value, whether or not we're physically healthy, whether or not we have money in the bank. Like, honestly, all that stuff is temporal. They can be blessings, but they're all temporal. What we value, what we ought to value, because this is what God values, is endurance. Steadfastness. This, this word, again, look at the verse with me. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remained. Circle that word steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness. There it is again of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That word steadfast, steadfastness is one we've seen before. It's the hupomene, the word that means remain under. And you shouldn't be trying to get out from underneath the thing that God is doing in your life. In fact, you actually want to be in the place where God can do His deepest and best work. We flat out do not think this way. We don't. It's counterintuitive. It's, it's, it's counter to our fleshly nature. We want to get out. We want to squirm out from under. We want the easier path. God said the harder path is actually going to be better for you. That's, that's the way of blessedness. That's what God wants for us. We, we want to value that. Not trying to get out from what God is doing. Not wanting to grudgingly, fine, then, fine. I'll stay under. God, if you say so. But patiently enduring the oppression, the trial, the injustice, so that we can be all that God wants us to be. Amen? Then he goes on. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. This, by the way, in case you're interested in stuff like this, this is the only mention of Job in the New Testament. Only time he's mentioned. And his story, of course, we know enough to know that it was horrific. It was devastating. The evil one wanted to test some things out. And so he's having a conversation with the Lord. They agree to test God's servant, Job. In the course of a short period of time, he loses all of his wealth. And he was a wealthy man. All of his children were killed. He lost his own health so that he was very ill. His friends and his wife go sideways on him and turn out to be no help at all in the midst of the trial. And Job 1.22 says this, In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. It's not that he didn't struggle. It's not that he didn't have it out with God a little bit. It isn't that he didn't plead with God for his circumstances to understand them. You read the book of Job, you see all of that. But he did not charge God with wrong. He did not sin. Steadfast, faithful, enduring, he remained under. And having said all of that, the latter part of verse 11, James says this to his hearers, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. In Job, in the prophets, hopefully you're seeing it in how He's working in your life, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. We ask the why question. Why, God, did this have to happen to me? Why did I have to face this? And sometimes we don't understand. We, we, we think that it's some kind of mysterious answer. We may not know the exact purpose, and yet it's given to us right here. 
We've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We've seen how he's working. God's intent in all of this is to increase our faith, to increase our intimacy with him, to increase our dependency on him, to strengthen us, to help others through similar trials. These are all the purposes of God. And ultimately, we see how the Lord in all of these things is compassionate and merciful. So many people want to accuse God, turn a blind eye, not stopping the evil from happening, allowing injustice and suffering to take place. Why doesn't He step in? If He loved me, why doesn't He do something? God's intention is always for our good. Not always that we can see. Ultimately, that we shed our dependency and our love for the things of this world and eagerly look for the coming of our Lord and our Savior. In all these circumstances, Jesus Christ is indeed at work in us. And we have to trust Him. Remain under. See the free flow of grace, of faith, of love, of mercy. Strength being produced in in our lives. And all of this ultimately for the glory of Jesus Christ for His purposes in our life. Amen? That's what we're going after. So in a moment, we're going to sing a declaration. I will follow. I will follow. Listen to the lyrics of this song. Because they echo much of what we've looked at in the text today. Let me pray for us before we worship Him. Father, thank You. Thank You for the clarity of Your Word today. And I know God having preached this and having had the time of prayer that we had earlier in the service, that there are those in this room who are bearing up under burdens. God, they perhaps needed to be reminded of the promise here today that You're coming again. God, I pray that that thought of Your coming would would occupy our thoughts this week. God, that we would be living in light of the soon coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We would, we would pray that. Maranatha. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. In the midst of our pain, we, we cry out to You. We need You. We need Your grace. We need Your strength. We need wisdom. We need things that are far beyond our capacity. Father, we can't resist we, we can't break out of the circumstances that we're facing. These are beyond us. We, we can't change them in any way. So God, walk with us. Give us what we need to make it through and to please you in doing so. Through this, through everything that you might ordain for us in this life, Father, we make the declaration right now say this, I will follow I will follow you. Thanks so much for listening. We pray that today's message was encouraging and challenging. For more info about Harvest Bible Chapel, check us out online at harvestberry.ca. Thanks again, and remember, you are loved.